Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton. As you know, this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every now and then when I am completely blown away by an idea or a new business that can vastly improve the delivery of mental health care or the outcomes for healthcare, I shine a spotlight on the founders and the people behind it. Veritas is such a program and it's for healthcare workers who are struggling with addiction or mental health challenges. Right now, the CEO of Veritas joins us, Stephen Wolf. It is so good to see you, Stephen. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So, Stephen, tell me about your background, why you got uh, involved in something as specific as healthcare delivery recovery. It's an interesting story, in many ways a, a sad story, but a, but, a, but a great ending. So, you know, I grew up in New York and um, I had a very successful business in uh, Manhattan where I put in uh, executive benefits in at large hospitals and law firms. I was really successful at a young age which was very difficult for me. But in my early 30s, I started developing a pretty significant cocaine addiction. And over uh, a five-year period of time, I destroyed my life, lost the business that I had worked so hard. I come from a a low middle-income family, so success and money was new to me and exciting to me, but I had to work so hard for it. And over several years, I ended up destroying the business destroying my personal reputation and professional reputation and almost ended up dying. You know, fortunately for me, I uh, was able to get some help. So I, you know, I had gone to a bunch of different treatment programs that dealt with drug and alcohol addiction, but I needed additional help. I ended up finding a program that was specific to childhood, physical and sexual abuse about getting the help that I needed. A few years ago, I started to reflect upon those experiences. I was a highly functioning executive in corporate America, and there was these great treatment programs, but I saw something that was really missing. What was missing was I would leave my life to go get help in a kind of this bubble, only to re-enter my life with a large career and a complicated life. And I felt what was missing were like these resources as an executive to really deal with my career and my life. So I said, you know, why can't we try to integrate the best of clinical treatment with the best of executive coaching Mm. instead of competing with each other, start working together day one to help people. You have said so many things that I want to expand upon. I think it's the number one reason most treatment programs fail is not because what happens inside the doors isn't great. It's just that it's not nearly long enough or substantial enough to actually change the outcome of the person's life once they're back with their friends, back in the stress of family, back in the old trauma repeating behaviors that they've had before. So this is music to my ears that you're doing. Oh, this. It's super cool. Really yeah, amazing. Thank you. thank you. I also just want to talk about your own trauma. So there was a history of some sort of abuse or sexual abuse. How do you integrate trauma-informed recovery in your program? Well, it's interesting. Um, I have so much respect for the work that the clinical community does in these areas. You know, I had done a bunch of different treatment around a lot of these childhood traumas mm. and with, with little to no success. And someone had suggested to me doing art therapy. And I was actually offended by, by the idea. You want me to do what? And I, I met a clinician out in Scottsdale, Arizona that had me doing 
drawing with my non-dominant hand and listening to music. Wow. And it was able to tap into the trauma with the snap of a finger. I believe and so. It, just, it has some elements of EMDR in it somehow. Yeah, it was just wow. so incredible. So I'm a big believer in you know, a variety of different treatment to help people that have suffered the way I've suffered. But you know, so critically important, we'll talk about it in a second, is you're dealing with healthcare providers today, especially those on the front line that are dealing with trauma and PTSD. Yeah. How can you help these people? How can you provide virtual alternatives to get people that have been adversely affected with, with COVID? I really want to get into that because we're in the second wave of this and you begin to see some of the social exasperation, the posts, the crying, the TikToks and the Snapchats of these healthcare providers who are like, you don't understand. We are at wit's end. It's as if we've been to war for more, almost a year now. And, and the idea that this can happen again, while there are some people who are still denying the existence of this very deadly pandemic, has got to just be so difficult. Do you hear that from people, that the exasperation is, is at a kind of breaking point for them? You absolutely do. You know, and the media does a great job covering it. It's painful. But I'll tell you what's even more painful is that you have so many medical professionals that are suffering so badly today, but yet are so scared to get help. Mm. And that is where the problem lies. Medical professionals, there's such a stigma in the marketplace about getting help for mental health. They're concerned about losing their licenses. They're concerned about the repercussions from their colleagues of getting quote unquote found out. So what bothers me today significantly what what really is the passion for this work that we're doing today is to be able to create a safe environment where medical professionals can voluntarily seek out help without the fear of getting in trouble and that's a huge enormous challenge today because it's almost in the wiring of doctors and nurses that i cannot tell anybody this because what will it mean if someone finds out that i'm not doing well in Oregon, there are actually um, reporting laws. So don't those laws apply when someone, so for instance, if a colleague said, I'm deeply depressed and I'm considering suicide, it is um, beholden upon the person who, that, who received that information to actually report it. Well, you know, there, there are mandatory reporting rules that, are, that differ state by state, yeah. but you just hit it on the head. Somehow the medical community has got to unite right now. And instead of like finding a way to support each other with empathy and compassion in a way that doesn't exist yeah. in order to kind of facilitate change. Yeah, I was uh, shocked to see the suicide rate among um, physicians. I was shocked. I mean, I, I've personally known two who died by suicide and never told a soul before they jumped uh, off of fifth floor parking lot or hung themselves. But I ended up feeling like if I know two people, you know how you always extrapolate out, what does that mean for the numbers of people? So what are the statistics, Stephen? And how many people in the medical profession are suffering from anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts? uh, The numbers are staggering, right? So if you look at statistics, you know, they're kind of in line with the general population. 10 to 15% of medical professionals have some type of substance abuse issue. Mm. The numbers that are suffering from uh, mental health are significantly higher. 
know, burnout is such a challenge right now, which is a precursor to a lot of substance abuse. So I think recent statistics say like, you know, almost 50% of medical professionals are experiencing some form of burnout right now. And this area of COVID, the, the long-term effects of healthcare providers is going to be a real issue when we come out of this COVID era, just when the dust settles to see how things play out with this community. And one of the reasons that I keep hearing from medical providers is that they're losing large numbers of their patients. So one would think you work in an ICU, you're kind of used to deaths. But what I didn't, what never really occurred to me is they're able to say four out of five people. And with mm-hmm. COVID, they're losing far greater numbers than they've ever been used to before. So you might have four or five deaths on a ward in one day. You know, it's, it's interesting, not being a medical professional, it's so difficult to put myself in those shoes because the job just seems so overwhelming. Yeah. And just thinking about when you hear doctors or nurses talking about their responsibilities at work, the fears of bringing COVID back into their homes, just the complete overwhelming mm. of this moment in time, it's really painful. And then put on top of that, not having a safe place to talk about how you're actually feeling. Yeah. One thing that I've been curious about how people are doing in a pandemic world is most recovery centers rely on people coming in, getting out of their routine, going into a safe spot with, you know, a chest of drawers and a bed Uh and group therapy. So you're handling it virtually, but that doesn't mean that you're taking away the substance. So how do you work with that particular aspect of your recovery? Well, you know, it's interesting when we, um, you know, my partner in this program is a nonprofit organization in New York called Freedom Institute. So they've been in the outpatient treatment business since 1976. Mm. They work with a lot of healthcare professionals because a lot of the big hospitals in New York City aren't walking distance to their program. So they've got a pretty in-depth knowledge of working with with this type of patient. Pre-COVID, we thought that there was probably an opportunity to take what is being done in person and bring it on a virtual platform. And it would do a few things. Number one, it would help improve confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Such an issue is coming, leaving and going from an outpatient treatment facility being seen. If there were a way that we can do this virtually and help mitigate some of that risk, we thought people would be more inclined to, to get help. The second thing also is efficiency. When you live in New York or a big city, or you live in a rural area, you think about the commute times that to and from an outpatient treatment facility. It is so ineffective. And I'll tell you when the light bulb went off. A few years ago, I was in my office in Santa Monica, and I see a psychiatrist a few times a year to really just to renew Wellbutrin, which I've been taking for years. Yeah. My office is six miles from the doctor's office. And I literally had to block an afternoon out in Los Angeles with Los Angeles traffic to go for this 30-minute session. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's got to be a better way to do this. This is absurd that I had to block out. So then I started doing a lot of research on the use of video conferencing, and and it wasn't being used for behavioral health in the way that was being adopted in other healthcare. So we started trying to collaborate about, well, what if we were using some of this video conferencing to deliver substance abuse treatment? And so last year, we started probably piloting this and building this design, we thought it would take years Mm -hmm. to get the clinical world and the medical world to believe that this was a viable solution. And literally COVID happens 
And overnight, the entire treatment world literally goes virtual. So there's been a lot of great information out there from treatment providers like the Freedom Institute. The Betty Ford Clinic came out with a recent white paper study about their experiencing using virtual treatment. And the feedback is the following. Patient engagement is better. Wow. Patients are staying in the program longer. Incredible. And clinicians like using it with the same kind of results from an efficacy perspective with relapse rates. So the experience has been really positive. I'm very curious about um, medical assisted withdrawal. How are you handling that? How do you determine whether or not a person can do okay on medically assisted withdrawals? Medicine assisted treatment, it's such an important part of treatment today to help those um, successfully come off drugs or wean off drugs. And it's becoming more and more accepted in the physician communities. Yeah. Um, so that's fascinating right now is uh, state physician programs uh, become more lenient in the adoption of medicine-assisted treatment, but it's critical today with the opioid crisis using everything at our disposal to try to improve outcomes. Do you find that the group therapy that you can offer people is as beneficial as it would be if it were in person? Just hearing somebody else's story, just knowing other people are going through the same thing that they are must be incredibly beneficial. I I personally believe that we heal in community. Yeah. So whether, you know, I've I've been an active participant in 12-step programs for a long time, and and in the simplest term, the, the community, the connection, the empathy that exists in a 12-step community, to me, is so important. Mm-hmm. And I think the same exists in group therapy as well, especially when you're dealing with medical professionals. What telehealth allows us to do is to build programming and populate a program with exclusively medical professionals, giving them a platform to talk with their colleagues about the challenges of what you disclose or don't disclose on a licensing application, what you disclose or don't disclose to your patients, how do you work on a daily basis being around drugs, how are you dealing with the trauma and exhaustion and compassion fatigue of being a healthcare provider today. But you know, having a group where you can share honestly and safely about those issues we think is critically important. You know what you've just brought up for me, Steve, and I, I run a company where we provide mental health programming. And regardless of what company it is, it's almost as if you need to tailor information and mental health advice for what it is that people do. Because mm. you cannot just dole out, you know, sort of a blanket generic piece of advice for someone because the pressures that people under are so unique in every single industry. So a firefighter is different from a construction worker, is different from a physician, is different. So of course, this way of you actually doing it by industry is super effective. You know, think about the brick and mortar model. Yeah. It is, it would be extraordinarily, extraordinarily difficult to populate a program with just patients from a specific industry. You'd go out of business. It should be too difficult to do. Yeah. But a telehealth platform allows us a much bigger reach. And you can then 
really start building out these verticals specific to certain industries so cool. that we think is really unique. So you think you're going to one day move beyond healthcare professionals to other industries and, and provide that same sort of support? I think there's a, a big opportunity right oh, now to cool. work with lawyers as well. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a uniqueness to them. Yeah. But we're all in on healthcare professionals. There are two challenges that we really set out to address. Number one, could we create an alternative to residential treatment for someone that would qualify? Obviously not a risk in themselves, didn't need to be detoxed because the residential treatment model can be very disruptive, having to leave work, to leave your family. And for many people, it's the absolute appropriate form of treatment. But for a lot of people, they would do better with an outpatient treatment program that was designed to meet their needs. So virtual intensive outpatient program we thought was very important for a certain demographic of patient. That still leaves us with a major, major issue. How do we get medical professionals that are struggling with drugs or alcohol, how do we get them to ask for help? Mm. Right? And everybody's trying to figure that out. We have spent a lot of time and energy thinking through that. And the thing that we came up with that we believe is really unique is coaching. Doctors in particular have a lot of experience in using coaching for communication issues, for business issues, for disruption issues. There's a lot less stigma around coaching than there is with clinical treatment. As an example, your colleague doesn't have to report you to a board. They know you're doing coaching. So could we create a program specific to drugs and alcohol where coaches can, you know, we have physicians who are coaches, We have nurses who are coaches, Mm -hmm. and could we start using this kind of healthcare recovery coaching as a less stigmatized way for someone to ask for help? Mm. That's what we've been. I would imagine the only thing that you run into there is that insurance is not going to cover it in the same way, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and and I think that's probably better for privacy issues if people can afford to go out of pocket. But I keep thinking about the lowly person on the healthcare worker train, you know, that person who um, is seeing this kind of death, maybe the person who has to bring them in the bodies in and put put them in body bags, they're equally as traumatized. So it'd be so wonderful to one day be able to convince insurance companies that it doesn't matter how the health gets delivered. But you know, professional coaches do an enormous amount of heavy lifting when it comes to people's behavioral health. They really and I do. think that will change over time as we yeah. start to document outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the beauty of drug and alcohol treatment is you can document outcomes with drug and alcohol testing. Yeah. So that data can be really important to share with an insurance company over time. And if you can show how you can integrate clinical treatment with coaching produces significantly better results yeah. where there's less relapse rates, which are extremely costly to an insurance company. Over time, we think they will not only be a believer, but a partner in helping to build that out. Oh, I'm hoping I see one day that this model is actually taken out to all other forms of treatment where people get the care and the assistance of a social worker, a behavioral health coach during their recovery, because otherwise it is just too difficult to do alone. That feeling of camaraderie and the feeling of great enthusiasm and spirit, you know, in the very beginning just dissipates and you're on your own. 
you're left with every party you go to serving alcohol and people all around you doing drugs. Stephen, I think you are on to something super, super interesting and very big. I know there's, because we're putting this program out specifically to health workers, somebody listening that is like, how do I get involved? So could you walk us through the steps of how a person would apply for the program? Well, th there are a few things that I think um, we are hosting a webinar and it's a very interesting panel discussion. We have the head of Northwell Health. They own 11 hospitals, I believe, in New York City, Physician Wellness. We have an the head of emergency room services at Mission Hospital in Orange County, and we have our chief medical director. And so we're going to be talking a lot about a few things. How to identify the warning signs in your colleagues that are experiencing burnout and substance abuse. How to help reduce stigma around asking for getting for help. And we're gonna be talking about our coaching program as well. So as a starting point, participate in the webinar, it's free. That is a, a great way to kind of get more information, get to meet me, I'll be moderating the event. We have a website, which is, I don't know if you want to say, it is www.veritassolutions.com. So that's V-E-R-I-T-U-S solutions.com. There's a telephone number there, my telephone number's there. I love having conversations with my peeps because I know exactly where you are right now. So I'll talk to anybody any time of the day that has questions or struggling. That's the joy of my work. That's awesome. COVID, obviously, and the pressures of quarantine had to have had a huge impact on you personally, Stephen. What, what have you had to do to remain well during this time? Well, I'll tell you a funny story. Beginning of COVID, I was in uh, an apartment in Santa Monica, California. Like many people, I was recently single. I was just kind of losing my mind. And a good friend of mine owns a farm about two and a half hours north of Los Angeles. It's on 60 acres. So in the beginning, about the mid-April, I ended up going to the farm for a weekend and I haven't left. So you're still on the West Coast. I'm still on the farm. farm. I've been on this <laughs> Yeah, oh, so it's so hysterical awesome. because on the weekends, I have spent most of my life in Midtown Manhattan. On the weekends, I literally put overalls on. I put a cowboy hat on and these boots. It's like I'm dressing up for Halloween every weekend. <laughs> and I go work, out, work on the farm. So, oh my God, I love this story so much. I'm so, <laughs> I mean, people often say to me, why do you keep pressing people? But the reason I press is because I get stories like that. It's fantastic, Stephen. I'm so glad to know that you're doing well in your Dr. Doolittle phase. It's oh, fantastic. it's hysterical. And I, I realized how little skills I actually had physically, but I was willing to learn. I was made fun of a little bit, but I got over it pretty quickly. So it's been a, if not now, when type moment. Yeah. So I've enjoyed being on this farm. And I'll share a quick thing about being on farm life that has been transformative for me. When you live on a farm and you interact with farmers, nobody on that farm cares about what you do outside of that farm mm. or who you are outside of that farm. Mm. And what it has helped me shed is the story that I've been carrying with me and the energy that I present to the world on who I think I'm supposed to be because on a farm, it doesn't matter. They don't care. The only thing they care about is how you treat me in the moment. Mm. And it has been, I can't believe it's taken me this long in life to just be able to let go of the story. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the story I have is shameful. 
a lot of things in my life did not work out well because of drug addiction and you know, just carrying all that. So being on a farm has let me just let go of all of that and just the level of freedom on just being able to separate from my story has been uh, cathartic. What a beautiful narrative. I mean, it's almost like a movie. It's fantastic. It's so great. I hope to one day meet in person um, when this is an enormous success and is being adopted countrywide, hopefully worldwide, because I really do believe in it, Stephen. It's fantastic. Thanks again. My pleasure. Great to spend time with you. If you love the program, as so many people do, we would love to hear from you. You can always email me at Sheila at Beyond Well Solutions, and you can give us any kind of review that you'd like wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Make it a great day.